Section 13 of the Science History of the Universe, Volume 8. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Science History of the Universe, Volume 8, edited by Francis Ralt Wheeler. Part 1, Pure Mathematics, Chapter 7, Analytic Geometry, Part 1. The final union of algebra and geometry by means of the analytic geometry is usually attributed to Descartes. Algebra has been used at various times in connection with geometry, by Apollonius and Vieta in particular, but in their works the idea of motion is wanting. Descartes, by introducing variables and constants, was enabled to represent curves by algebraic equations. A point in a plane is determined by its distances from two intersecting lines which, for convenience, may be taken as perpendicular to each other. By allowing these two distances to vary, the point moves and generates a curve. By expressing the relation between these two variable distances in the form of an equation, the curve becomes subject to investigation following the laws of algebra. This is the great contribution by Descartes, and by it, the entire conic sections of Apollonius is wrapped up and contained in a single equation of the second degree. Kajori. The plotting of an equation of the first degree, which results in a straight line, was spoken of in connection with algebra, as was also an equation of the second degree. The general equation of the second degree is written in the form ax squared plus bxy plus cy squared plus dx plus ey plus f equals zero. Two processes are applied to change the form of an equation, which evidently depends upon the axes chosen. One of these is to translate, or move parallel to themselves, the axes, and the other is to rotate them about the point of intersection, which is called the origin. If the general constants a, b, c, d, e, f are such that the equation can be reduced by one or both of these operations to the form b squared x squared plus a squared y squared equals a squared b squared, the curve is an ellipse. If to the form x squared plus y squared equals r squared, the circle b squared x squared minus a squared y squared equals a squared b squared is the equation of the hyperbola, and y squared equals 2px is the parabola. If the left member of the equation can be factored, it is a degenerate conic. The equation of the third degree gives a curve which is called the cubic. Newton gave a classification of the cubic curves the general form of which is a closed loop and an open branch. The curves of higher degree comprise some of the historic curves. In addition to the algebraic curves, there is a great class of curves called transcendentals. To this class belong the curves of the trigonometric functions given in page 157. The most famous of the transcendentals is the cycloid the path of a point on the rim of a carriage wheel as the wheel rolls on the ground. If the wheel rolls on the circumference of a circle instead of on a line, 
The curve generated is called an epicycloid and is one of the curves used in laying out gear wheels. Some idea of the number of curves that have been investigated may be gathered from the fact that an Italian writer listed these curves with a short description of each, filling a large book of about 700 pages. The method of Descartes is easily carried to three variables. An equation of this form might be z equals f, open parenthesis, xy, close parenthesis. The plane determined by the two perpendicular lines OY and OX is the old XY plane, perpendicular to it the new Z-axis OZ. Since X and Y are independent of each other, any value as OM may be laid off for X on the X-axis. Perpendicular to this axis, a value of Y, say MN, is plotted. Putting these values in the equation, z is determined, which is laid off at right angles to the plane xoy, or np, that is, p is one point of the surface represented by the equation. If a corresponding point is found for every point in the xy plane, the entire surface will be plotted. An equation of the second degree in three variables, x, y, and z, represents one of what are called quadric surfaces. Such surfaces are of two classes. On a surface of the first class, such as the ellipsoid, no straight lines may be drawn, and the geodesics are all curved lines. The ellipsoid is generated by a variable ellipse moving parallel to itself. In the second class of surfaces, called the ruled surfaces, the geodesics are straight lines, the hyperboloid of one sheet may be generated by a line moving parallel to itself while constantly touching two circles in parallel planes, the planes being oblique to the moving line. Such a surface has two sets of line generators, one set inclined to the right and the other to the left. The cubic surface or surface of the third degree contains 27 straight lines, a fact discovered by Dr. Cayley in 1849. In the drawing of the section of one of these surfaces, some of these lines are seen. The blackened portion indicates where the solid model is cut, only a part of the surface being shown. The principal advances in analytic geometry have been along three lines. One, changes in the system of coordinates. Two, changes in the element used. Three, the introduction of the imaginary element. In 1857, President Hill of Harvard gave a list of 22 systems of coordinates then in use, and since that time, many more have been added. One of the most useful systems is known by the term polar coordinates, in which a point P is located by the distance R equals OP from the origin and the angle theta between OP and the initial line through O. This system greatly simplifies some of the equations of the Cartesian system. For example, r equals a constant is the equation of a circle in polar coordinates. The general equation of the straight line in Cartesian coordinates is ax plus by plus c equals zero. This equation is seen to lack homogeneity or likeness. 
two of the terms containing variables and the third term being a constant. This unlikeness is removed if, in place of choosing as determining coordinates the distances from two intersecting lines, three lines are taken which intersect in pairs, that is, do not pass through the same point. Instead of using the three distances, the three ratios of these distances are taken as the trilinear coordinates of a point. In Euclid's choice of elements, the primary element is the point, with the circle and line as secondary, each of these being an aggregate of points. A point in motion generates a line or curve. The curve in motion, not along itself, generates a surface, which, if moved outside of itself, gives a solid. And the whole geometry is a point geometry, made up problems in which a certain point is to be found the intersection of two lines, a line and a circle, or of two circles. Looking at these elements from another viewpoint, they are but the circle which Euclid could draw and its two limiting cases, as the radius becomes indefinitely small and becomes indefinitely great. The latter Euclid could not draw, whence he assumes straight edge as one of his instruments. The symmetry of the three suggests that the line might just as well be taken as the point. A line is made up of an infinite number of points arranged in a certain way, and a point is made up of an infinite number of lines arranged in a definite manner. A theorem which is thought of as a relation between points, it is evident, may be by simply interchanging the words point and line, become the expression of a relation between lines. This principle of duality was first worked out in its entirety by Jean-Victor Poncelet, a brilliant young French lieutenant of engineers who was made prisoner in the French retreat from Moscow in 1812. Finding himself in prison without books or any means of enjoyment, he occupied himself with investigations in geometry and wrote his classic work on the projective properties of figures in which the principle of duality is completely worked out. The analytical or algebraic investigations of geometry very often result in giving values which involve the imaginary element I. Every equation of the second degree represents a conic, and if two such equations are solved simultaneously for the points of intersection, four such points result. If the equations are those of circles, it is seen that two circles at most intersect in two real points. The other solutions result in imaginary solutions. The coordinates of these two points are conjugate imaginaries. One is of the form a plus ib, and the other of the form a minus ib. These two points are indicated by i and j, and are called the two circular points at infinity for it is found that every two circles, besides intersecting in two real or two imaginary points in the finite region of the plane, also intersect in I and J. Again, it requires five points to determine or pick out a conic section, and it is known that three points determine a circle. What about the two missing points? They are I and J, which lie on every circle in the plane. In this conception, a circle is the aggregate of all the points in its circumference and the two points I and J.
If a circle has its radius indefinitely diminished, it approaches as a limit a point, a degenerate conic which was its center. The equation of a circle with the center at the origin of coordinates is x squared plus y squared equals r squared. If r be made zero, the equation is x squared plus y squared equals zero, which may be factored, giving x equals iy and x equals minus iy. These are the equations of two imaginary lines called isotropic lines, which have some interesting properties. Through every point of the plane pass two isotropic lines. These isotropic lines make the same angle with every real line through the point. The distance between any two points on an isotropic line is zero, from which property they are called minimal lines. The isotropic lines join the real point through which they pass with i and j respectively. Perpendicularity between two real lines through the real point is a relation between the two lines and the two isotropic lines through the point. The algebraic treatment of geometry permits the investigation of imaginary elements with exactly the same rigor as that of the real elements. And the only distinction between real and imaginary elements is not one of existence, but of adaptability to the picturing processes of the mind. The term imaginary originally implied non-existence, but the development of algebraic processes has entirely swept away that meaning. The whole question of existence with the geometer is not one of material existence. Points, lines, and planes are but creations of thought without materiality. That which exists is that which is consistent in thought, coherent, and non-contradictory. A real element is one which may be represented as a line by a mark or string, a surface by a sheet of paper, and the imaginary is one of which no such picture or image may be formed. The disposition to seek decision upon matters which do not come within the domain of present knowledge, that intuitive desire of mankind to rely upon the doctrine of chance, seems to be a universal trait with humanity that such an instinct should arise and be cultivated in every branch of the human race is but a corollary of the fact that the future is hidden. Probability is more or less a factor in the life of every individual. It may be said that in no contingency which arises is there more than probable evidence upon which to proceed. Voltaire puts the case more strongly. All life, says he, rests on probability. As a moral guide, it is said that the following theory was taught by 159 authors of the church before 1667. Quote, if each of two opposite opinions in matters of moral conduct be supported by a solid probability, in which one is admittedly stronger than the other, we may follow our natural liberty of choice by acting upon the less probable." Close quote. This gaming instinct has left as a heritage a number of games of great antiquity, varying from those in which skill and mental acuteness is the predominant factor, down to those in which no element enters except that of pure chance. The best type of the first class is the game of chess, 
while perhaps midway comes cards, and finally dice. Games akin to chess and checkers are represented in Egyptian drawings as early as 2000 BC. Professor Forbes puts the origin of chess between 3 and 4,000 years before the 6th century of our era. Although this antiquity is to be doubted, it must be considered as extremely old. The game of Shaturanga is said to have been invented by the wife of Ravana, king of Ceylon, when his capital, Lanka, was besieged by Rama. That the game was in some way connected with war seems evident. The Chinese name for chess is literally the play of the science of war. The word Shaturanga means the four divisions of the army, elephants, horses, chariots, and foot soldiers. The intricacies of the game are seen when it is known that there are as many as 197,299 ways of playing the first four moves and nearly 72,000 different positions at the end of these moves. The move of the knight is one move forward and one diagonally, and from this has been framed a famous problem. So to move the knight that it occupies but once each of the 64 squares of the board. This problem gives rise to some very odd geometrical designs on the board if its straight line is drawn between each two successive positions. The solution here given is that of de Mauvre. The number of possible solutions has been shown to be over 31,054,144, figure 55, Knight's Move in Magic Square. The origin of cards is as uncertain as that of chess. They appeared in Europe about 1200. If one seeks to go back from this, one trail leads through Spain to Africa and Egypt, another over the Caucasus to Persia and India and perhaps another is picked up in China. In the Chinese Dictionary, 1678, it is said that cards were invented in the reign of Xian Ho, 1120 AD, for the amusement of his various concubines. Tradition says that cards have existed in India from time immemorial, and that they were invented by the Brahmins. Figure 56, Knight's Tour on Single and Double Chessboards, Falconer. One form of cards, the tarot card, was brought into Europe from the East by gypsies, who used them for divination purposes. They undoubtedly have been connected with witchery from the very beginning. A number of famous problems have been devised with cards. The first to be spoken of is Gurgons, or the three-pile problem. In this trick, 27 cards are dealt face upward in three piles, dealing from the top of the pack, one card at a time, to each pile. A spectator is requested to note a card and remember in which pile it is. Taking this pile between the other two, the operation is repeated, and the third time is noted the middle card of each pack. Ask now for the pile, and it is the card noted in this pile. Now if the three piles are taken face down in the same order and dealt from the top, it is the fourteenth card. Gergon generalized the problem to a pack containing M to the M power cards. The mousetrap is another noted game with cards. A set of cards marked with consecutive numbers from 1 to n 
are dealt in any order face upward in the form of a circle. The player begins with any card and counts round the circle. If the kth card has the number k on it, a hit is scored and the player takes up the card and begins afresh. The player wins if he takes up all the cards. If he counts up to n without taking up a card, the cards win. In Tartelia's work occurs a similar problem. A ship carrying as passengers 15 Turks and 15 Christians encounters a storm and the pilot declares that in order to save the ship and crew, one half of the passengers must be thrown into the sea. To choose the victims, the passengers are arranged in a circle and it is agreed to throw overboard every ninth man, reckoning from a certain point. In what manner must they be arranged that the lot will fall exclusively upon the Turks? The number of combinations possible in various card games is enormous. With the whist deal, this number is 53 octillion, 644 septillion, 737 sextillion, 765 quintillion, 488 quadrillion, 792 trillion, 839 billion, 237 million, 440,000. Dice and Delassus go back in history at least 3,000 years. Apollo taught their use to Hermes. These Greek gods probably got their knowledge from Egypt, where dice, and it is even said loaded ones, have been found in the tombs. Gaming with dice was common with the Romans, who had two forms, one like those of the present, and the other oblong and numbered on but four sides. On these, the deuce and the five were omitted. The convulsion of nature which overwhelmed Pompey found a party of gentlemen at the gaming table, and they have been uncovered two thousand years after, with the dice firmly clenched in their fists. Seneca brings the gambling Emperor Claudius finally to Hades, where he is compelled to play constantly with a bottomless dice box. End of section 13